Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. The coronavirus pandemic placed new pressures on schools' mental health services. It placed a stress on a network that had already been inconsistent and spotty even before the pandemic. Our reporter Sammy Edge spent the past three months looking at mental health services in the schools, looking at the challenges, but also looking at some success stories around the state. She joins us this week. So joining me over Zoom from adjacent offices, I have Sammy Edge uh, joining me this week to talk about uh, her, her series on mental health and the needs in schools. And it was a fantastic series, Sammy, and I, I really want to, a lot I want to ask you about, but I want to start where you started the series. You wrote about how Idaho had a fairly spotty mental health network even before COVID-19, and the pandemic just made the situation more complicated. Just kind of walk us through that. None of that thing is too surprising, but what's really significant in all of that? Certainly, and thanks for having me, Kevin. Um, yeah, I mean, we know that mental health was a huge deal for, for youth in general, even before the pandemic. Um, national estimates hold that, that one in five teens have um, a diagnosable mental health concern, and you know that probably even more have a have a day to day concern that might not, not even rise to the level of a diagnosis. Um, and we also know that across Idaho, youth can struggle to find care. We're we're ranked as one of the bottom states for youth access to mental health care when it comes to the number of our kids who have needs and the number of them who who can access that help. Um, so schools are a big a big place where kids can get help. They're they're one of the prime places where teachers might notice a concern um, and be able to connect that kid to services. And Idaho really doesn't have much in the way of requirements for how far schools have to go when it comes to connecting a kid to help, what kinds of services um, they are expected to provide on site. Um, so it's really kind of a mixed bag across the state of, of what districts are doing to identify and connect students with mental health, uh, mental health help <laughs> when they need it. Right. Do you think, um, it, oh, go ahead. In terms of the pandemic, I mean, so one of the things I wanted to do with, with this series was kind of talk about what does the landscape look like right now? And really what I found is that it's, it's a pretty mixed picture. Um, the State Department of Education started the, the work of mapping Idaho's um, behavioral health resources for youth. Um, I, I believe it was last year. Um, and, and just last fall, they kind of came up with a general idea of, you know, how many districts have services, what do those look like? Um, urban schools tend to have more resources than rural and charter schools. Um, and, and only about a third of schools across the state have a structured program for helping their youth. Um, and just over half have some kind of behavioral health practice that they use. And I want to get to that mapping and maybe the gaps between urban and, and rural districts when we start to talk about some of your, your success stories. But I want to maybe look a little bit sort of at the political realities. You know, you, you kind of started the series looking back at 2020 and the legislative session. And I remember that hearing when House education members really questioned the need for social emotional learning. And it feels like ages ago, but it was really only 15 months ago. Is there a difference in maybe the perception of the need 
maybe not politically, but maybe at the school level? Is there a better understanding or a, a more of a consensus that this is a problem that needs to be addressed? You know, I've certainly heard from from state leaders that they're optimistic that the pandemic has kind of shifted the focus on this. I think we have heard a little bit of it in the rhetoric at the state house. Um, Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I haven't seen a whole lot of action around youth mental health at the state house this year. No, I think you're right. What I, I have seen is some of the politicians who last year were were doubting um, social emotional learning. They have made statements about how schools important for youth mental health. So I think there is an increased recognition where where maybe that wasn't part of the conversation last year. Um, and I, I do think that the general public is is well aware of the way that that the pandemic has impacted youth mental health. I think it's a conversation we hear a lot on the media. Um, and I think kids are speaking up about their concerns. Uh, the State Board of Education earlier this year had a had a panel with a bunch of students and they said that mental health was one of their primary challenges coming back from COVID. Um, in terms of, of the politics of it, like I said, I don't know that we've seen much movement at the State House, um, but I do know that the State Department of Education and the State Board of Education are still moving forward with efforts to help expand services. Let's shift to a little bit of the, the more of the personal plane of the series, because I think the power of this series wasn't just looking at what's happening politically and what's happening at the school level. I mean, there are some really, really powerful personal stories in this series. And I have to start with Calvin Laffer. I mean, how did you find him and how did that story come together? Certainly. Um, yeah, I was really touched by how many people wanted to share their personal stories with me to help me. Um, you know, talk about the importance of youth mental health. Uh, so a big thank you to everybody who took time to, to tell me about some really personal stuff. Um, I actually, I saw Calvin's story for the first time on the Boise State University's, I don't think it was their main Facebook page, but maybe the College of Ed Facebook page, um, because his mom is a professor at, in the College of Ed, if I'm correct. And he helped, he presented at a suicide prevention training for teachers. So they, you know, wrote a quick snapshot on their Facebook um, and I got in touch with him. And this was actually right before the pandemic hit. So I, I met Calvin the first time about a year ago and he told me a story. And then this series just like seemed like the perfect place to, to highlight it. Um, so, so Calvin Laffer is a was a student at Boise State International School. He's now a freshman at Boise State University. And when he was, I want to say, a sophomore in high school, he um, attempted to take his life uh, with a with a gun and survived. Uh, pretty incredible that he made it through this ordeal. Um, and he's really made it kind of a mission to to talk about mental health, to help other teens recognize that you need to listen to your emotions and you need to to talk to people about it. You can't just let it bottle up. And he's become really an advocate. He, he really wants to get that message to to other uh, other young people who are who are at risk. He really does. He sees it as kind of a, a lifelong mission. Yeah, it's, it, it was really an amazing personal story and really humanized the, the problems that, that, that are that are unfolding. So how did you 
settle on the districts that you you focused on as success stories. I mean, this is a solutions-driven project, and you focused on Nampa, Cache County, and Lapway. I mean, one large district and, and two smaller rural districts really, really kind of, you know, not, not in the profile of a district that would necessarily have the resources to to have some success in helping kids at risk. Sure, and I think that's kind of why I wanted this this spectrum. Um, and you know, before I wanted, before I knew I was going to write about a district, I needed to make sure that there was some data to show, um, you know, whether or not they were having success. That can be a really difficult thing to track when it comes to behavioral health. So, what kind of of data these districts are collecting is is kind of um, across the board. Um, and we can get into that a little bit more when we talk about these individual districts. But, um, you know, one of the most common supports in the state is um, in-school therapy for students mm-hmm. and partnering for in-school therapy. And I know that NAMPA, um, they're by no means the only district that's doing this. It's its become increasingly popular across the Treasure Valley. I'm sure that a lot of um, Boise schools are doing it. I know Caldwell's doing it. Um Nampa seemed like an ideal district to highlight um, and to talk to because they're they're pretty open about how things are going in Nampa, and I really appreciate that. Uh, it's really a candid discussion about here are the lessons that we've learned along the way, things that work really well, and things that we've kind of struggled to address. Um, Cache County has a really unique program that I was just intrigued to learn more about. Their program is called Connect. And they, they essentially partner with an agency based out of Utah um, that that helps coordinate um, immediate access to therapy for, for Cache County School District students who call um, this phone number. And they can do immediate crisis counseling on the phone or get a student connected to an in-person or a teletherapy appointment um, really in a matter of days. And then finally, the Lapway School District um, you know, it was important to me to to try and highlight diverse voices in this series. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lapway is really unique in that, while it's a very small, very rural district, it has a lot of local resources because of the um, connection to the Nez Perce tribe. Mm-hmm. And, and it kind of raises one of my favorite anecdotes from the series was in the Lapway story when you were writing about how in the seven drums religion it's tradition you don't mention the name of a person who has passed away for for a year so counselors really have to speak to students about grief in a very different way and and at a time when there seems to be so much backlash about recognizing diversity in the schools this is a really powerful example of a time when you need to recognize the you know, you know the diversity of your students and you know recognize where they're coming from and their their history and and tailor the way you, you you know treat their needs. Absolutely, absolutely. And I thought that that was um, it was a really powerful powerful example for me to learn about when when that district was telling me about how therapy might look different for um, students from different cultures um, and and how exactly they address that. It felt reading the Nampa and the Casha County stories that one of the common threads with the two of those districts is figuring out how to partner with other groups that can help students at risk. In Nampa, it's Terry Riley. In Casha County, you kind of, you touched on it before. It's this uh, group in Utah, Bloomquist Hale. 
is that kind of a common thread here? Districts really are needing to figure out how to get services and realizing that there are limitations to what they can do in-house. Certainly. I mean, I don't think anybody expects schools to have teachers who are certified therapists, right? Um, I, I think districts would absolutely love to have um, a therapist employed at every school, but I, you know, it's just not a financial reality. So coming up with these partnerships um, has been one one low cost way for districts to connect youth to to mental health services um, and to really break down barriers between. I mean, if the kids are already showing up at school and you can get them this help at school, that's amazing. Um, it, it gets rid of issues like parents without great transportation or um, appointments only being offered nine to five when a student is in school and a parent is at work and, and having to take time off work or drive to an appointment. Um, when in reality, you know, that, that student might need all the time they can get in the classroom. Um, so I, I think the partnerships are really uh very, very common and probably the most realistic way to, to help youth connect with services. And it felt like, and I really don't want to draw or paint with too broad a brush here, but when we're looking at these three districts, Nampa and Casha County and Lapway, these are three districts, for all their differences, there are some commonalities. You know, they're all three are fairly high poverty school districts. All three have you know, fairly sizable population of, you know, students of color, whether it's Latino students in, in Nampa or Casha County or the Native American students in Lapway. And I just wonder, you know, none of those are markers necessarily for mental health issues. And, and again, I'm trying not to overgeneralize here, but I'm wondering, are these districts that have maybe because of their demographics, they've, they've had to be very attuned to students who are, you know, you know who are you know, facing challenges at home or facing challenges in their life? Sure. Um, I think that's a good question. I think when you work in a district that is high poverty, um, you might see some of those struggles more readily. Um, but one thing I tried to do with this series is really highlight students from from many different backgrounds. Um, you know, in, in my Casha County story, the lead opened with a student who was not a direct beneficiary of, of these services the district is providing. She went to school before the district started providing those services. Um, but she's the daughter of a, of a businessman in town who says that, you know, her life was perfect. She she didn't really want for anything, um, but she really struggled with, with mental health issues, with anxiety, with self-harm and suicidality growing up. Um, you know, in Nampa, I talked to another student who, um, you know, struggled a little bit when her, she was worried about her family who was facing homelessness. And then in Boise, we have Calvin Loffer, who, who really says that he didn't, he didn't struggle with mental health too much growing up, um, until his sophomore year when he really started to have a lot of factors kind of spiral. So I was hoping to convey that this is a really universal experience, your background, aside, everybody can struggle with mental health. Right. I mean, it seems like in, in the Calvin Lawford story, you're talking about a, a student who there were no markers. There were no, you know, obvious warning signs to, to what he was going through. Sure. And and it came on pretty quickly. And, um, you know, he, he didn't he didn't really know how to address it. So when the hallmark 
Well, when the cornerstone of getting students help is helping them in the school, you know, giving them in-school services, what do we do for students who are who are not in a traditional school, you know, who have, you know, who are learning at home, who are learning in like a virtual charter? How, how do we, how, how do you bridge the gap in that situation? Not just during the pandemic, but post-pandemic, because you'll still have students who are learning at home in some way. Certainly, that's that's a great story and one that I would love to write. I mean, it was something that I heard repeatedly when I reported on these stories was that it was a struggle for these um, kind of budding mental health programs to reach kids when they went home during the pandemic. You know, in Cache County, all of a sudden, kids stopped calling into this line, even though it wasn't a service provided at school. Um, and in, in Nampa, it, it became more difficult for therapists to connect with their students who maybe didn't want to do teletherapy or had troubles with internet, that sort of thing. Um, I have not found a great example at this point of, of a service that was really able to continue helping kids from a distance. Um, although I'm sure that there are some, I, I would love to write that story. If somebody, if somebody knows of a service, uh, with some data to show that it, it really excelled during the pandemic, please get in touch. I mean, there's an understanding that there's a need out there and, you know, hopefully there's somebody who's providing some solutions in that sphere. I'm sure there is. I just, you know, with this, the three months I've been working on this, I wasn't able to, to pin it down, but I can't wait to hear about it. So in the academic plane, there's been so much talk coming out of this pandemic about learning loss, about the need to bridge a lot of deficiencies that have unfolded over these 14 months. Is there anything analogous that's being talked about in the mental health sphere? I mean, you know, I actually um, heard last week, so there was a there was an annual prevention conference held by the State Department of Education, um, and they kind of touched on a, a number of things from, you know, threat assessments at schools to making sure that you um, are providing resources for migrant students. Uh, but one of the main threads of the discussion is social emotional learning. And Superintendent Ibarra gave a, a brief uh, speech to the people attending that conference. Uh, it was a virtual conference. I feel like I should mention that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Isn't everything. Yes. And one of the things that she said is that um, the department is looking at both how they're going to address student academic recovery, um, but then an important part of that is making sure that there are mental and behavioral supports for Idaho students. Um, I don't have all the details of that, but I, I thought it was um, really interesting to see that that prioritized right alongside academic recovery and learning loss. Um, I know that the that the Department of Education is working on getting some recommendations to the superintendent this summer for for ways that she might um, suggest to the legislature next year that that we strengthen Idaho's behavioral health services for students. So I will certainly be doing some more reporting on those plans, um, and I'll be interested to see how social emotional supports. Um, kind of factor into the state's recovery from from COVID. Because you really just can't separate the two. I mean, you, you can't address one without addressing the other. I mean, you know. The superintendent brought up something that was really interesting and I, I hadn't thought about before. Um, you know, she talked about how we've historically had these at-risk students who um, were at risk 
you know, because they were struggling with poverty or um, outside factors that make it more difficult to succeed in school. Uh, one of them might, might certainly be mental health. Um, and she mentioned that, you know, we're seeing students who are struggling now who used to be um, high achievers in school. And part of that is because of the situation that the pandemic has created um, for, for mental health um, and kind of expanding that at-risk student population to, to really look at um, what are the social emotional factors playing in here and how do we address those. So last question, you know, when I, whenever I do a project of this magnitude or of this uh, depth, I always find myself at the end, there, there are these observations or ideas or items that I just can't fit them into the stories someplace. Are there any of those that you were left with that you, you wish you'd found a home for that you can just kind of leave us with? Oh, there are so many. There are so many stories I have still to write. Um, one story that I didn't get to in this series, it's really important, so I'm just kicking myself for running out of time. But um, I really want to know more about districts that are seeing a lot of success addressing the needs of their Latino student population. Um, that's really important, especially when we know that there's probably not a great access to bilingual counseling services. Um, maybe not necessarily for students who, and I'll bang this drum forever, students who are majority English speaking, <laughs> but for their parents and for family services, you know. Um, I also heard a really interesting tidbit from Lapway that, that they saw a decrease in the number of suicide attempts among their students during the pandemic. And that's a really interesting point that I, that I haven't dug deeper into yet. Um, so I'd be curious about that. Um, you know, another thing that I think when we talk about mental health, we default to suicide a lot of the times. Um, I know suicide has been a big discussion at this at the state house this year. Youth suicide. I, I didn't include any data in this series from the Department of Health. Really, what what that data shows is that during 2020, Idaho's youth suicide rate was about on par with what it was in 2018. Hmm. However, there was a big drop in 2019 and it was just one year. So it's really hard at this point to say like, was Idaho really making gains in addressing youth suicide? And we were seeing that success in 2019. And was then the it pandemic an aberration? Was there some factor that uh, nobody's been able to pinpoint yet? Was there an anomaly in 2019? Yeah. Right. So that's another that's another really interesting question. But I would say that when it comes to youth suicide, we're not seeing rates enormously higher than they were in 2018. They're about on par. Sammy, again, this was a fantastic series. Uh, it's a difficult topic. It's difficult to talk about. It's difficult to interview people about. It's difficult to write about. And, and you did a, an amazing job of of humanizing the story, but also bringing it into policy and political perspective. So congratulations on the series and thank you for talking to us about it. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate your help. Um, one thing that just occurred to me and the Department of Health people would would remind me of this. And when I was talking about suicide, I talked about suicide rates and what I should actually have been talking about was the number of youth suicides okay. because that is the data I have. So just okay. wanted to correct that briefly and uh, thanks again for having me, and, and I hope people enjoy the series. If they have any ideas for which districts I should look at next or um, promising interventions for youth that are happening out of state, 
please, please get in touch. My email is S is in Sam edge, like the edge of a cliff at idahoednews.org. Sammy, thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Again, that was Sammy Edge. If you haven't yet read Sammy's series on mental health, I encourage you to do so. And the easiest way to get to it is to go to our website, idahoednews.org, scroll on the Topics tab on the top of the page, scroll down to Investigations, and that will lead you to the five-part series. And I hope you keep an eye on idahoednews.org all week next week as we continue our coverage of the Idaho Legislative Session. Monday will be day 106 of the Idaho Legislative Session. We don't know how many more days it will take for the session to wrap up. Lots of big education topics still in the balance. Watch the website for daily updates. Watch us on Twitter at Idaho Ed News for bulletins and breaking news as it occurs. I will be uh, tracking the legislative session. Blake Jones is working with me uh, as we cover the end game at the State House. We'll keep you posted. That's going to wrap it up for this week, and that's going to wrap it up for the podcast. Again, this is Kevin Richard. I hope you'll be back next week for another edition of the podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. And again, you can watch us over social media and watch the website for the podcasts as they drop every Friday morning. Until then, stay safe and have a good week. <laughs>